All right, good morning, everyone. Do we sleep all right? All right. Well, today's looking like it's going to be a promising day outside. And I'm not going to hold you too long. <laughs> all right, I'm just going to stop lying now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the best I can to keep this short. <laughs> but we're going to be in Matthew 18 this morning. And I kind of feel like the parables that I've chosen for, um, for this weekend are some of the more accessible and important and like uh, they really get at what is essential to understanding the Christian faith. So today we're going to talk about what happens when the gospel gets in. How does it shape relationships? And we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 18, and we're going to read verses 21 through 35. This is God's word. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him. Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. (coughs) This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this new day. We're grateful that we have an opportunity to enjoy this beautiful place. And we're also grateful that we have an opportunity to hear from your word. And we pray that this morning, the seed would fall on good soil. We pray that you would help us to receive your word, to grow up in the grace of the gospel, and to ask ourselves the hard questions about who it is that we want to be. Who do we want to become? What do we want to be about? 
And Lord, to find the answer to those questions in the beauty of what the gospel can produce in a person when it gets hold of a heart. So Lord, bless this time to be fruitful. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. When I went off to college at NYU, I had the full intentions on having myself a good time. I got the biggest meal plan that you could get. I tried to stay in the nicest dorms you could stay in. I took advantage of all the amenities. It, it wasn't even a question. I wanted to have myself a really good time in college. I got all of the textbooks just because. I didn't read nary one of them, but I got them all. I wanted to have the full experience. And so I really just sank my teeth into my, my experience at NYU. And it, had, it hadn't occurred to me um, that all the while, this, this was accumulating debt. <laughs> I, I, I enjoyed college, and I enjoyed being in school so much that I decided to go and do another six years in seminary for grad school. Um, so my first semester of seminary was down in Dallas, Texas. And I remember walking, in, walking into my apartment one day, the mail was on the ground, and I picked it up, a piece of mail up off the ground, and I was like, hmm, Citibank. That's weird. I never get anything from them. And I opened up this note from Citibank, and it, it read something like this. Dear Russell, congratulations on completing your undergraduate degree. It is now time to start paying your student loan bill. And when I looked at that debt, the paper just kind of fell out of my hand. And it was like slow motion. It was going back and forth to the ground. I thought I heard a violin playing a sad song. Because <laughs> it, it had the debt. It had the total debt. And then it had it broken out into monthly payments. And I'm like, yeah, it don't matter how you break this down. I'm not going to be able to pay this back. It was an astronomical debt. And what made things worse was at the time that I got this letter, the job I was working, my wages were at the poverty line. And not only were my wages at the poverty line when I saw this debt that I owed to Citibank, but I was actually in the process of accumulating more debt in the very moment that I was reading about the past debt that I'd, I'd racked up. I was in a bad situation. And I, all of a sudden, the anxiety was rushing over me, and I was like, there's, this, there's no way. I cannot pay this. But then after the initial shock wore off, I bent down and I picked that letter up again. And my eyes found this hopeful ray of light. When I continued reading through the letter, it said this. You may qualify for a debt forgiveness program backed by the federal government. And once I read the words debt forgiveness, my whole attitude changed. When I read the words debt forgiveness, all of a sudden I started imagining what it would be like to be free from this debt. I started imagining all the bandwidth I would have, all the freedom I would have if I could, if I could just qualify for the government's debt forgiveness program. Now, here's the deal. You may not have student loan debt. You may not have credit card debt. Most of you probably don't have any mortgage debt. But according to the story of scripture, each and every one of us 
has accumulated sin debt. We've accumulated sin debt every single solitary day of our lives. We have accumulated this debt. We've been having ourselves a good time. We've been living it up in many ways. We've been doing what it is we want to do whenever we want to do it with whoever we want to do it with. And we don't realize that all the while we've been racking up this debt. And scripture is God's letter that comes to us and notifies us of the debt that we owe. It lets us know that we owe God a debt. And when you look at the debt, it doesn't matter how you split it up. Into monthly payments or into lump sums, the debt that we owe to God for our sin is astronomical. There's no way we can pay it. And listen, here's the deal. At the very moment that you learn of your debt to God, in that very moment, you're living at the spiritual poverty line. And you're racking up more and more debt in the very moment that you've learned of the debts you have accumulated in the past. We continue to fail We continue to be selfish. We continue to sin against God. We continue to sin against one another and hurt one another. And the debt continues to rack up and rack up and rack up in the very moment and into the future. But here's the deal. The scriptures also tell us of a debt forgiveness program that is backed by the kingdom. That is backed by God himself. And the... the, The story of Scripture tells you what it is you need to do to qualify for God's debt forgiveness program. This passage for this morning gives us hope, but it also gives us responsibility and obligation. And as you consider what it means to have your debt to God forgiven, you are also invited to imagine what you could do with all that extra bandwidth. What could you do with all the extra bandwidth once you're forgiven of your debt? Once it's no longer necessary to perform for God or to, or to try and win God's favor. Once you are forgiven, you have freedom and bandwidth now. And this scripture invites you to begin to think about that. Many people come to this passage and they make it all about forgiveness. But here's the deal. Even though it's about forgiveness at some level, what it's really about is relationships. It's about relationships because forgiveness is the call of God for the purpose of healthy and restored relationships. So we're going to get into this passage for this morning. We're going to look at two points, the principle of forgiveness and the practice of forgiveness. The principle of forgiveness. What does the scripture say about it? What's the biblical principle? And then the practice. What does this look like when it takes form in our lives. You see that fly? The devil's busy. Y'all, y'all thought I was lying last night talking about the devil. That fly attacked me while I was trying to talk. Y'all saw that thing? But hey! Alright. This happens to me regularly, by the way. It doesn't matter like where I'm speaking. All of a sudden, this fly's like, I'm coming for him, right? <laughs> let's, look, let's look at our first point. The principle of forgiveness. Now, we're going to get into this text. But immediately when we start talking about forgiveness, in our modern context, a lot of people think, does that mean that justice goes out the window? Does that mean that we no longer care about justice and then people just get off the hook and the cycles continue to to repeat themselves? Does embracing forgiveness mean that there is no justice? But here's the deal. You have to remember that this passage that we are given today 
It comes right after a section that's about confronting a member of your community when they sin against you. It doesn't mean that there is no justice. What it means, though, is that there is an opportunity once a person has sinned against another person, there's an opportunity for restoration in God's scheme of thinking about human relationships and their design. So this passage naturally flows off of this conversation. When someone sins against you, you confront them. And then Peter has this, this question, right? Okay, okay, you, get, you got people sinning against one another and, and when you confront someone. But Lord, okay, for real, Lord, how many times am I obligated to forgive my brother if they keep on sinning against me? Up to seven times? Now here's the deal. The popular teaching at the time, the rabbis, the popular teachers said that you had to forgive up to three times if your brother sins against you, your sister sins against you. After that, you're not obligated anymore. So Peter thought he was like magnanimous. He thought he was, he was really generous in saying seven. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, I don't tell you seven times. I tell you 77 times. And of course, he means that there should be no limit to our forgiveness. We should go on forgiving. And Jesus is doing something pretty sophisticated here. And I'm going to hit it briefly. If you're not familiar with the Bible, one of the ways that we support how we interpret passages of Scripture is we use other passages of Scripture that, that are clearer to shed light on them. And we consider where a passage sits within a book. We consider where a passage sits within the broader arc of the story of God. So if you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, Adam and Eve, they fall into sin. And then we get to the story of Cain and Abel. You've heard of this, right? Cain and Abel. One brother murders another. Cain kills Abel. And then... There, there continues to be a spiral of evil that happens. Until you get to this, this situation, right? Like, after Cain murders Abel, God says, Anyone who murders Cain, I will avenge sevenfold. Why does God protect this murderer? Because at the very beginning of the story, God wants to interrupt cycles of violence. Cycles of revenge. Revenge killings like God is trying to interrupt it. So he protects this dude who murdered his brother because it's for the greater good. Because if we have a world in which vengeance is the paradigm, it will become a violent world. It will become an ugly world. But seven generations down from Cain, there's this there's this dude named Lamech. And Lamech was a murdering dude. And he boasts of his of his deeds to his his wives and he says if Cain is avoid sevenfold if he's avenged sevenfold Lamech will be avenged seventy sevenfold this is the first instance of gangster rap you know he, this is a poem and he's like this is something you can't understand how I could just kill a man like he is that's way back for your time um, but it's it's his first instance of gangster rap and he's basically saying I will, I will exact the extreme of revenge. Should The most extreme revenge should be exacted if something happens to me. This is the last time you hear the word 77. Do you see what Jesus is doing? The infinite vengeance of the ancient man 
the ancient man, has its response in the infinite forgiveness of the God-man. Jesus is overturning the principle of infinite revenge by giving a principle of infinite forgiveness. This is, this is the use of the 77, right? Jesus is trying to, to set a new pattern for his community. And then he jumps into a story to illustrate the, the principle of forgiveness. Now look at the story. There's an emphasis, y'all. Do you see it in the text? There's an emphasis on the extravagant character of forgiveness that's, that's taken up in the parable. And it places the disciples' forgiveness of others squarely on the foundation of God's forgiveness of the disciple. I'm going to say that again. Jesus places the disciples' forgiveness of others squarely on the foundation of how God has forgiven the disciple. So it doesn't matter as much what's going on horizontally. It matters what has happened vertically. And that becomes the ground upon which we are expected to extend forgiveness. Now look at verses 24 to 25. This man who's a servant owes the king 10,000 talents. Now here's the deal. That was the largest number you could construct in the Greek language. You couldn't make a bigger number. It was the biggest number that you can make in Greek to express an amount. And the talent was the largest unit of currency. So Jesus is making this parable particularly graphic. Because here's the deal. There there didn't exist 10,000 talents of money in circulation at the time. Jesus is essentially saying this. This is the, the Greek way of saying, there's a man who owed the king a bajillion dollars. Right. That's that's what he's doing. He said the debt was infinite. You couldn't calculate it. You couldn't measure it. It was beyond your ability to fathom. This is making the point is his debt is beyond number. He owes more than is in circulation. And in verses 26 through 27, if you look at it, this man is desperate. He doesn't have the resources to get himself out. He has no hope and he begs for time. And he promises to pay everything, y'all. But it was an impossibility. And everyone listening to the story would have seen that this was impossible. It didn't matter how the man pleaded. It didn't matter the promises that he made. It didn't matter whatever initiatives he would try to cook up. Give me time and I'll pay you back everything. It was as pitifully untrue as any of our excuses when it comes to paying God back. It was an impossibility. But the king essentially says this. Check this out. The king says, you can't pay me back. But I'm going to forgive the debt. I'm going to forgive the debt. It's an extraordinary act of mercy. And here's the deal. (laughs) Anytime forgiveness happens, somebody's paying the cost. If, If you do something against another person... And they let you off the hook. They actually absorb the cost. The king has to take the loss. If you loan someone 10,000 talents and they can't pay you back, it's not like, oh, no harm, no file. No, No harm, no foul. It's actually the king takes the loss. And that's what happens in this passage. The king is willing to take the loss, to let the servant off the hook, to extend forgiveness. This man... Despite all his promises, despite all his talk, could not pay this amount back in many lifetimes. He couldn't pay this back in many lifetimes. 
but the king forgives the dead. And we immediately see the point that Jesus is making to his disciples, don't we? You see the point? This is what God is like toward us. We could never begin to repay the debt that we owe because of our sin. You can say, please be patient with me and I'll repay you all, God. I'll start going to church. I'll start, I'll start, I'll start helping the poor. I'll start being a decent person. I'll start studying for my test now. I, I will, I'll try to be an upstanding citizen. I, I'll try to vote in a way that reflects just society. I, I'll do my best. I'll try harder, God. And all of those excuses are as pitifully untrue and unhelpful for relieving the debt as this servant's promises to pay back the 10,000 talents. Do you see the magnitude of it? It would, have, it would have come into stark relief. Could you imagine owing more money than is in circulation in the American economy? That's trillions. And for you to say, I'm going to pay it back. Like you couldn't pay it back. I don't care if you make $100,000 a year. I don't care if you make $250,000 a year for the next 200 years. If you could live that long, you cannot pay the debt. And that is the faintest glimmer of the, the indebtedness that we have before God because of our sin. This is what Jesus is saying. But Jesus shows us that he is the kind of king who's willing to take the loss in order to extend forgiveness to us. He takes the laws. And the only qualification that you need, listen, the only qualification you need is your need. And you can qualify for God's debt forgiveness program. Do you see? That's what, that's what Jesus is telling us about God's debt forgiveness program. How do you qualify? You come with your empty hands. You come with your need. And you know what? For highly competent, educated, self-respecting, and reliant people, oftentimes, that's the most difficult thing to find, is your own need. It's hard, but that's all you need to bring, is your need. And God will forgive. There's no fine print. There are no limits. This is how Jesus is toward his people. Listen to the words of the church father, African church father, Augustine. Augustine. Augustine was one of the black African church fathers, one of the most important architects in the, in the Western understanding of theology. No one is more important than Augustine. He was a pastor as well. And this is what he said in preaching to his congregation. He said of Jesus, he accepted what was not his due and he gave us what was not ours. So I want you to be forgiving for I've caught you begging for pardon. I want you to be forgiving because I've caught you begging for pardon. He says, forgive, don't recoil, because you will be the very person in need of seeking forgiveness before the sun goes down on you today. That's that Augustine fire. I know your eyebrows are gone now. I understand. It's like, dang. You see what he's saying? Every person that refuses to extend forgiveness is a hypocrite of the greatest order. Because you will be the very person asking for forgiveness before the sun goes down. Needing forgiveness. Longing for it. And it is an illusion 
to think that you will not be in the same place that your offender is currently in before too long. And do you really want to be the kind of person that saws at the tree branch that holds you up? Do you want to be that kind of person? Do you want to live in a world where revenge is the order of the day? Do you? No. I'm telling you, you don't. Because the minute you say, I want to live in a world where revenge is the order of the day, that is the day where you seal your own fate and you will become a victim of the policy that you've endorsed because you need forgiveness. You need forgiveness. Not just from God. You need forgiveness from other people. You need forgiveness from the people that you hurt. And if we all live in a world where we we keep long accounts, and we refuse to extend forgiveness, that becomes an ugly, contentious, polarized world. You know what it becomes like? It becomes like what we got now. That's what it becomes like. Fault finding. And the only way that you can survive in that kind of economy is if you can fault find with other people and their sins pile up higher than yours. That's the only way you can feel better about yourself. You notice that in our political discourse, right? When, when, when a character on this side gets discovered for doing something grotesque, this side is all up in arms and they're pointing it out. You know why? It's diversion. It's like, oh, look over there, look over there. Because they know that if, if they're honest, they have all kinds of faults in the characters on their side too. It goes both ways. It cuts both ways. And that's why it's so critical that God's community is an alternative community, a counter society, a place for people like us where forgiveness is freely given, where the need forgiveness, the need for forgiveness is freely recognized. Each and every one of us is not under any delusions that we can go without the need for forgiveness for any length of time. Now, here's the thing. I want you to look at this passage. You don't even have to be a Christian to acknowledge the way this story works. You don't have to buy that all of the Bible is God's word and that it's true. I just want you to consider something. When you read the story of the man who's been forgiven an extraordinary debt, and then you see that man turn around to someone who owes him pennies and choke him and demand that he pay back the debt... What emotion does, does that bring up in you? Anyone? Anger. Anger. I didn't tell her to say that. <laughs> I promise. Does that make you mad? Can you be indifferent? No, no, seriously. Like, like if you saw someone who was forgiven an extraordinary debt and then they go and they choke someone out for pennies, you would be pissed. You would be livid. You'd be like, hold up. The inconsistency would be. I'm trying to think of a word. It would dig in on you so bad. You would be livid. Now, do you see what Jesus is doing? Jesus was a master teacher. Because what he's saying is that any time that one of his disciples who has been forgiven an extraordinary debt refuses to forgive their brother or their sister, they are acting like this character in the story. He doesn't qualify the degree of offense. No matter what 
the debt is that someone owes to you, it will never be the 10,000 talents. You've been forgiven 10,000 talents. It doesn't matter if the offense is a big sin or a little sin. It doesn't matter if it's a socially acceptable sin or a sin that is really bad in the eyes of the culture these days. It doesn't matter what the nature of the sin is. And Jesus actually hitches your understanding of the gospel to the degree of willingness you have to forgive other people. He says if you don't make the practice of forgiving other people like this, it really brings in the question whether you have been forgiven yourself. Whether you know God's forgiveness. And again, what does Jesus do? Let me slide this tension over to you right quick. <laughs> Jesus is not concerned about giving you a neat and tidy little theological paradigm here. Well, wait a minute. I thought, I thought our forgiveness was based upon the finished work of Christ. It is. And also Jesus says this. So what are you going to do with it? That's that. Jesus is like, he slips you that thing and then he walks off and you're like, you're holding a grenade and you're like, oh my God. This is what he does. The, 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 the indicator of where your heart is is demonstrated by your willingness to forgive other people for their sins. Because here's the deal. The only way you live in a place where you are free to forgive is when you're in touch with how great the forgiveness of Jesus for your sins is. And anytime you are unwilling to forgive... You're in this kind of situation where their sins, the sins of people out there, are greater than the sins that are within you. Now, we're going to get into the practice of forgiveness. It's not just so simple in terms of how to work out forgiveness. But the, the clear call to forgiveness is here from Jesus. Here's the deal. For the servant who's been forgiven, the king has changed his world. He's rewritten the ordinary rules of behavior. But the beneficiary of that new world behaves as though nothing had happened. The debtor consigns his debtor to a fate that he only escaped by mercy. Do you see that? You see that? Here's the thing. If you take this story and you break it, and you have a man going after another man for a debt that is owed to him, even with anger, we can understand that, right? I want my money. You owe me money. Pay me my money. And you're not going to pay me my money? I'm calling the authorities. I'm calling the creditors. But you know what makes that story take its proper context? You know what makes that story look absurd? It's only the extraordinary act of mercy that takes place beforehand. That's what sets the context. Listen, if you call yourself a Christian, you no longer live outside of that context of an extraordinary debt being forgiven. It's the extraordinary forgiveness that makes the unforgiveness of the servant so absurd. Jesus makes your unforgiveness absurd. He makes an unforgiving spirit absurd, absolutely nonsensical. And it's that context that we've been brought into as Christians. The king has... Here's the deal. It's, the ink hasn't even dried on the debt cancellation papers of the servant before he goes out to demand that he is repaid by his debtor. I want you to feel the absurdity 
of an unwillingness to forgive if you identify as a Christian. It doesn't matter how deep the offense. Because every time someone sins against you, you have an opportunity to revel in the grace of God, to know that my sins and my crimes against God are far greater, are for, far more numerous. They're beyond my comprehension. And as bad as the sin against me is right now, that is a faint glimmer of the nature of my sin against God. It's, that's just the reality. And if you have a small view of your sins, then you will live a small life. It's only when you have an appropriate view of your sins that you will have an appropriate view of God's grace and then you will live in the freedom and joy of that. And you are free to forgive other people. You don't need to be hung up on it. You don't need to let their outsides control your insides. You know what I'm saying? That's a principle. Like when people are like acting a certain way and they're, they're mad or they're you know, emotional about something, their outsides don't need to control your insides when you know this kind of forgiveness, when you know this kind of freedom from the debt that you owe. This is what we see in terms of the principle of forgiveness. Forgiveness is not excusing. It's resisting the desire to hold wrong against other people. He forgives us so that forgiveness should become the practice of our lives. Practice. And you know why we don't see much forgiveness? It's because we don't practice it. We practice unforgiveness. And you know what? In that way, we're more disciples of the culture than we are of Jesus. Whenever we refuse to forgive. Whenever we delight in seeing people get what they deserve. Right? What if we got what we deserved? What if, what if, what if that was the, the heaven's celebration? Yeah, give them what they deserve. Where would we be? If we got what we deserved, the Bible would be four chapters. After Genesis 3, after the fall of man, the rebellion of man, chapter 4 would say, then God blew everybody up and lived happily ever after the end. Right? But the fact that there is a story that goes all the way through Revelation 21 to a new heaven and a new earth shows us that God is in the business of restoration, restoring people, restoring relationships, restoring communities, restoring the created order. All that has been broken will be put back together. Isn't it good news that God isn't making all new things? He's making all things new. That's powerful, you know, because you know what we do, right? If you have something that breaks, you're like, I'll just go get another one. And it's not unless that thing is very precious and special to you that you commit to making it right, to fixing it, rather than going to buy a new one. If you only go, if you discard it when it's broken and you go buy a new one, it's a cheap thing to you. It's not unless it's super special that you're willing to put it back together again. How, must, how special must you be to God? That he doesn't just get rid of you and create a new thing, but he actually commits to repairing you. And how special must his community be? That he actually commits to repairing it rather than trashing it and starting new. How precious must this created order be to God that he doesn't just trash it and start new, but he actually renews this world. That's what God is like. And because he's out to renew the things that are broken and and messed up and disordered. He's out to reorder those things. That's the kind of mentality. That's the kind of we should think God's thoughts after him in that way. Broken relationships, 
broken communities, broken campuses. You see what I'm saying? But let's get to the final point, the kingdom practice of forgiveness. What Jesus teaches in this parable is that unforgiveness is like the ethical heresy of the Christian. It's like the unthinkable. It's the impossible possibility. How could you? You could, but how could you? We are, we are more practiced, though, in unforgiveness than forgiveness. Because here's the deal. If we had a penny for every time we needed forgiveness, we'd be rich. And if we had a $5 bill for every time we freely gave it, we'd be poor. That's, that's our relationship to forgiveness. But the practice piece is the key piece for us. Verse 31. Remember how the wicked servant got busted. His fellow servants saw. You got to think about the story that your life tells. Based upon the way that you deal with people who have sinned against you, or the way that you deal with people who have moral failures, does your way of dealing with people say that you have been forgiven an extraordinary debt by God? In other words, hidden in this passage is witness. The idea that our willingness or unwillingness to forgive tells a story about what God is like. And could it be that many people have false understandings of what God is like because we do not forgive very regularly or very freely? Could it be that people have picked up this version of God like the third base coach who's sitting there watching on the field and he takes his hat, throws it down, kicks the dirt and spits, right? Like, like is, that's what God is like toward people who, who fail, toward people who make mistakes because that's the way we are. Could it be that one of the greatest ways that we can bear witness to the truth of the gospel is in our willingness to forgive? I think so. And I think that's what Jesus is suggesting here. Does your way with people say to the world, I've been forgiven an astonishing debt? What would others conclude about God if they were to perceive your way with people, particularly people who hurt you and sin against you? We don't want people to see in the Christian community a spirit of revenge and retribution. It's, here's the deal. It's one thing to want to forgive and to not really be good at it at the moment. And you need to practice your way into a new way of, of thinking. It's another thing to not want to forgive. You are hard-baked in your, in your unwillingness to forgive. And it's, if you're in that place, there is a warning from Jesus. To consider the state of your soul, whether or not you know the forgiveness of Jesus, whether you have come to him with your nothing, recognizing that your debt is unpayable and you need an extraordinary act of mercy from God to forgive your debt. There's room for us to grow in forgiveness, but how do we practice this? I'm going to give you some practical things right now. You want to know how to be better at forgiveness? You want to know how to practice this? Do you want to show the more beautiful way of Jesus? Do you want to bear witness on your campus? Do you want other people to know the grace that you've received? If you don't, you're a selfish person who needs change. I rarely speak. That just came out. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Sorry, not sorry. Hashtag not sorry. No, but like anything that we recognize as good, what do we do with it? We share it. You don't even have a good experience at a pizza shop without sharing it, right? Girl, you need to go get that pizza. That pizza was the bomb, right? Like that, 
It could be any, anything that you consider to be good. You share. Is God good? Is the gospel good? Do you want other people to taste it? This is one of the ways that we can share it. When other people are up in arms about the sins and failures of other people, and they want you to join in the bashing, as someone who knows what it's like to have failed like that person in some way, to be tender-hearted and understanding and willing to extend a spirit of generosity and hope for that person's recovery, that's countercultural and it's beautiful. And people will recognize the beauty once they get over the immediate shock of it. It will, it will irritate them. It will be a redemptive irritation in their life. Why? Because it's beautiful to see. It's like, look, I know what, we know what it's like. We are too familiar with what it's like to be on the other side of that equation. Feels good when you're on the side. It's like, yeah, you did me wrong. Now grovel at my feet, right? It feels good to be on this side. It feels powerful. But it won't be long, Augustine says, before you're on that side of the equation and you're longing for someone to forgive you for the debt you can't repay. So the first thing, how do you practice this? One, stop nursing minor hurts, injuries, and grudges. Stop nursing them. You know what nursing is? I got four kids. I know about some nursing from the observation standpoint, okay? <laughs> and here's the thing. With nursing, the, the, the baby comes out real small, but after nursing the baby, nursing the baby, pretty soon they get bigger and they eat you out of house and home, right? Here's the deal. Many of us are nursing small grudges that we've had with other people and now they're full grown and eating steak. Our grudges are like, rawr, right? Like, like we, because we nurse them. Yeah. Can't believe they did that to me. And now they walk around like they don't even recognize that they did something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Watch, watch, watch. Next time I'm going to get them. You know, like you nurse it. You keep playing it over in your head. You put on repeat the thing they've done wrong rather than putting on repeat the, the, the visual of, of God pardoning you. God releasing the debt from you. God tearing up the debt paperwork for you. This is what it's like to grow in love. You know what C.S. Lewis said? C.S. Lewis said, everybody loves forgiveness until they got something to forgive. <laughs> and I think the extent that everyone loves forgiveness when they're on the receiving end, and nobody loves forgiveness when they're, on the, when they're called to be on the giving end. But it ought not be that way with God's community. See that in this text. Stop nursing your grudges and your hurts. Notice what Jesus says about the unforgiving person. He doesn't say, you mediocre servant. He doesn't say, you halfway decent servant. He says, you wicked servant. That ought to shock our ears. (laughs) There are categories of evil and wickedness. And it's not just the Hitlers and the Pol Pots of the world. Jesus, again, do you like Jesus? Everyone like Jesus? Y'all like Jesus teaching? Yeah, totally. Jesus is like a totally good teacher. Jesus calls unforgiveness wickedness when it comes to people who claim to know his forgiveness, who who refuse to live in the practice of forgiving. Next, stop confusing strength and weakness. Don't sell it. Like our culture celebrates hardness. Our cultures celebrate people who put others in their place, who don't take any BS, right? Like, But that's confusing strength with weakness. There is no weakness in forgiveness. That is true strength. True strength is when you can have the sword over the neck 
and be justified in bringing that sword down and you relent. That's true strength. That's true restraint. Next, start at home. Start at home with the people you live with. You know what? One churchman named N.T. Wright, when he talked about ethics and virtue, he said, it's not in the really big moments that we become virtuous people. He says, it's in a thousand small decisions we make in the everyday moments of life to practice the virtues. And then on the thousand and first time, it becomes second nature and you do it when it really counts. Practicing forgiveness in the little stuff. Like, I'm going to give you a practical one. On the 52nd time that your roommate left their dirty drawers on the floor, right? And you're like, that nasty. I'm so sick of this. Like, yeah. And then you're mad, right? You know, you know, it's a little silly stuff. Or, or they, didn't, they didn't clean their dishes in the sink for the hundredth time. And you're like, I'm going to explode. I think I know where to leave their body. <laughs> I think I know. I think I know. I'm going to leave them up on that mountain up there. Right, you start to rehearse it like, those are the opportunities where you have the chance to practice forgiveness. Here's the thing. How many of y'all hear people talking about karma all the time, right? Everyone hear people talking about karma? Oh, karma's going to get you. Karma. Let me tell you something. Don't nobody in here want to live by karma. You don't want to live by karma. Because guess what? The scale of your bad deeds is never going to be tipped by the scale of your good deeds. That is a losing contest. But here's the thing. Most of us want karma for them and grace for me. And that's not the way of the Christian. The Christian is supposed to want grace upon grace for myself and the people around me. Karma would leave all of us in a bad situation. And if you think that karma would leave you in a good situation, you're deluded because of your pride. You think more highly of yourself than you ought to. I'm talking about the real you, the real you that nobody else sees. The real you that when you're alone, the kind of selfish, greedy thoughts that go through your heart. You're like, you surprise yourself sometimes. That's the real you. People say, that's not me. No, it is. That's the scary thing. You don't want it to be you, and I don't want it to be me, but it is. And grace is our only hope. All right, next. Start naming the tenderness of God toward you. Like, actually write it down. Name it. Name the ways that God has been tender and kind toward you. You know what it's like to be in that position, whether through act of evil in your soul or ignorance. You know what it's like for another to have you dead to rights. And in the moment that you catch someone sinning against you, you should remember the moment when you realized that you were caught and Jesus forgave. Right? Name his tenderness toward you. Practice forgiveness as both an event and a process. Forgiveness, listen, y'all, forgiveness does not remove the disciplinary consequences for a person's sin when, when they do something egregious. It doesn't take away disciplinary process. It takes away the punitive on our end. Like, I'm going to get you now. I'm going to make you pay. It, discipline is about reforming people. It doesn't remove the need for discipline. It just removes the desire for revenge. 
When we forgive someone, it's an event. The declaration, I forgive you. But it's not the end of the matter because every time you remember the offense, you are called to continue to forgive, to not hold it against them, to strive, to practice it every time their misdeed comes back to your memory to say, I'm not holding that against them. Why? Why? How? Because the scripture says things like this. I have thrown your sins into the sea of forgetfulness. As far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your sins from you. I have driven away your sins like a cloud. They disappear like a vapor. If God is not remembering your sins, then to practice and becoming like him is for you to resist remembering the sins of others and counting them against them. God's not counting your sins against you. He's releasing you from your sins daily. Every day is new mercies. Next, how do you get better at forgiveness? You need to start practicing confession. Being honest before God and being honest within your community about the things that you have done and failing to live up into the life of God. The things that you have failed to do, the things that you have done, the things that you've left undone, the things that you've thought, the things that you've said. And confessing those things, being honest, is just being honest about who you really are. Everyone, you know, if you do all the polls of, of what non-religious people, what they hate most about religious people, you know what's number one on that list always? Hypocrisy. I hate religious hypocrites. And you know what a hypocrite is? It used to be the word that was used in the dramatic world of the, of the, the Greco-Roman world. Because in the theater, they didn't do dress up in full costume. They just used masks. And then when they walked around the stage, that's, they would play their part. That was a hypocrites, the Greek word, a hypocrite. It was a play actor who put on the mask. A hypocrite, a hypocrite is not someone who does sinful things as a religious person. A hypocrite is someone who pretends that they don't. And one of the practices of the church, historic, one of the reasons why when you go to church, there's a confession of sin and then there's a pardon is because we are practicing throwing off hypocrisy to say, this is who I am in all my brokenness and all my need and my hope in life and in death is that I belong to Christ and that he forgives my sins. And he doesn't just forgive me. He's renewing me. I'm, be, I'm, I'm not who I used to be. I'm not what I want to be. And I'm not what I one day shall be. I'm not what I used to be. I'm not what I want to be right now. But I'm not who I used to be. I'm being renewed. And I'm grateful for that. But I'm not, I'm not going to pretend like I have all my stuff together. And when you practice confession, when you're in touch with your great need and how frequently you sin against God and fail God, that makes you more tender. You're more capable of being tender toward the people who sin against you. If you were just confessing the way that you let God down and you were untrue to your promises to God, if you just finished confessing that and then one of your friends let you down, they said they were going to show up for something, they didn't show up. You're going to be that much more able and aware of the need to forgive them. It's like, I understand. You know what? I just did that very thing this morning. Don't sweat it. I love you. I forgive you. Thanks for saying it. And ask for forgiveness, y'all, from one another. 
Lastly, this is the last thing I'm going to say. By the way, forgiveness is like everyone talks about like the, the interest in diversity these days, right? The interest in diversity. But you know why the world's vision of diversity is so unachievable? Because they don't have room for this, this paradigm where sin abounds, grace superabounds. They, they don't have the paradigm of gospel forgiveness or gospel grace. And so it's a paradigm that will never be achievable. When we talk about loving across the lines in the church, we actually have the resources and we just so very rarely take advantage of the resources. But forgiveness is absolutely critical if you're going to be a cross-cultural community. If you are going to have more and more of the 20% of students of color on your campus in this RUF, you're going to need to be good at forgiving. Because guess what? Misunderstandings abound when it comes to crossing ethnic and racial lines. And we hurt one another. And there's no such thing as engaging in this work without failing and making mistakes and saying things that were dumb and you shouldn't have said and hurting people. And when they come to you, rather than getting defensive, saying, I, I, please forgive me. I, I do not realize it. You don't have to be ashamed when you're willing to admit your failures. The shame comes in defending yourself to the very end. No, you're wrong. I'm not that. No, 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 no. I voted for Obama, right? Like, that, you know, like, to defend yourself. That's, that's the shame. Guess what? When Jesus is your defense, you don't need to defend yourself. And when someone says, you hurt me, to just simply say, I'm, re- I'm very sorry that I hurt you. Will you please forgive me? And I want to do better. I don't want to keep repeating the same mistakes and presuming upon your forgiveness. Even though, as Christians, we should be able to presume upon one another's forgiveness. Because our book calls for it. Our Savior calls for it. Last point, leave room for the wrath of God. You know what? The wrath and judgment of God is something that I think more progressive types recoil at. And I'm telling you something right now. We're going to talk about this tomorrow morning. We're going straight in to talking about this. But I'm telling you, the the wrath... And the judgment of God, if you understand it rightly, is good news. It's good news. And guess what? It's actually transformative for your life right now. Because if God is dealing with things, if God's going to handle true evil, then you don't have to. You can be free from the need to make real evildoers pay. And you can be free to live the life of beauty and to fight for the correction of things, but without the need to get ugly and take matters into your own hands. Leave room for the wrath of God. You know what it says in the scriptures in the New Testament? God says this, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And he says that to a community that's being treated unfairly by the the Roman government who would be tempted to take matters into their own hands. And he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And guess what? God's going to do it with perfect justice. And you will implicate yourself if you try to take it into your own hands. But remember, the big picture is the goal is not forgiveness as an end in of itself. The goal is restored relationship. And that is the end to which Jesus forgave us so that we could be in intimacy again. So that we could be connected again. So take this into your reflection today 
on what it looks like for the gospel to get hold. If the gospel gets hold of your heart, if the seed of the gospel takes root, you will become a forgiving person. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We pray that you would, uh, you would bless our reflection on your word and that we would grow in our ability to forgive one another. We pray for any of our friends in here who are just stuck in a spirit of bitterness or unforgiveness and unwillingness or incapacity to forgive people who have sinned against them. Pray that you would set them free by remembering that you forgive extraordinary debts. And if they know your forgiving love, that now they have an obligation to be a person who walks in forgiveness toward others. Lord, help us to be like you in this way and to trust you. You will handle making all things right. And in the meantime, we can relieve ourselves of that burden and live in love toward the people around us. Beautify us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.